Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the Bubbling Adventure, a podcast all about kids and how positive education and conscious parenting can impact their entire life as well as society. I am your host Julie and each Thursday we are having conversations with guests on different themes and our aim is to have open discussions, share different points of view and learn in a non-judgmental way. Today, Jennifer is telling us the truth about adoption. She's a mother of three kids, two of which she adopted, and she also wrote a book called The Journey to My Daughter. I would highly recommend listening to this episode if you are considering adopting kids, if you already have adopted, if you are an adoptee, or if you know someone who was adopted. We talk about Jennifer's experience and how she made the decision to adopt, how to have the most healthy adoption, why the truth about adoption matters, what questions you should ask yourself if you think you want to adopt, choosing an agency and so on. We also discuss the trauma of adoption and how to deal with it and why it's important kids know about their adoption story. I can see that 40% of you listen to the podcast without being subscribed. Come along. It helps more than you know. And there's a new episode every Thursday morning. The best way to support this podcast is to subscribe if you haven't already and write a review if you're listening from Apple Podcasts. Spotify also has a new feature where you can click on the five star button. It literally takes two seconds, but is very helpful. But without further ado, let's begin. Hi Jennifer, how are you today? I'm good, Julie, how are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be chatting with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Could you please introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah. My name is Jennifer Rose Asher, and my memoir just came out in December. It is about, it's called Journey to My Daughter, and it is about the adoption of my daughter. It's also, it's really my story. It's my own story. It's about how I decided that I wanted to have kids when I previously hadn't, and also about my miscarriages. And then this crazy trip that I went on to try to adopt from Vietnam and the eventual adoption of my daughter. Well, well, first of all, congratulations, because I know it's a lot of work as well to write a memoir and have it published and so on. So it's amazing. Congrats. Thank you. Of course. So can we maybe start at the beginning 
-hmm. you know of like if you don't mind sharing a little bit like when you made the decision to have kids and then you know like what happened well this could be a long discussion but um fine <laughs> I, never wanted, I never wanted to have kids when I was younger and yeah. I had kind of a midlife it was kind of the first chapter of my book so I had a little bit of a midlife crisis and I was um I was 29 years old and one of my girlfriends was turning 30 and I came in she was at my horse barn. And I came into the barn and I said, I had a gift for her. And I said, ha ha, you're 30. And she looked at me and said, you only have one more year. And I was like, what? I'm going to be 30 in a year. That's what comes after 29. Are you kidding? And I had no idea. And I was like, I guess subconsciously in my head, 30 was being an adult. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be an adult last next year. And what am I going to do? Like, I have no kids. I, you know, I don't really love my job. And I went home and I told my husband, I've been married for um, eight years, but I said to him, you know, I think we should try having a kid. And he was like, what? He's like, we, this is, we agreed to never have kids. What are you talking about? You don't want kids. And I said, I think we should try it. <laughs> wow. How did he think that? <laughs> not very well. He was not very thrilled. He's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually he gave in and we decided to, to have a child. I got pregnant really fast. I ended up having two miscarriages. Mm -hmm. And after the first miscarriage, he said, we can try this one more time. And if it doesn't work, I don't want to do it again. You were not easy mm -hmm. to live with when you were pregnant and going through all of this. It was too hard. I'll do, I'll try it one more time, but that's it. And the day I found out I was, I was miscarrying the second time that night, I woke up in the middle of the night and I got on the computer and said, I'm going to adopt. And I started searching about adoption. That's how I kind of happened into, I, I guess everybody has their own way. I, I never really thought terribly much about, oh, did I want a child that wasn't my, biologically mine? Um, that was never really mm -hmm. a big concern or a thought for me. Um, I was like, okay, my body doesn't want to have its own baby. We'll just race, you know, we'll adopt a, a child whose parents can't. And yeah. that was bad. Yeah, that's good that like you decided to, you know, do your own research. And I guess it did fit into your husband's conditions then because <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He got on board eventually. It he just it takes him a while, but he got on board yeah so yeah how, how did you like did you wake up in the next morning and told him like I want to adopt he, he knew I mean like, we had discussed it before and okay. you know I woke up in the middle of the night and I got online and this was 20 years ago this was more than 20 years ago so the internet was not like it is now and I mm -hmm. just searched and searched and had a pad of paper next to me and I wrote down every adoption agency I could find with their phone number and as soon as it turned nine o'clock, I started making phone calls and he kind of stuck his head in the office where he saw me. And, and I think he might've said something like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm calling adoption agencies. And he's like, okay. <laughs> like we had kind of, we, again, we discussed it after the first miscarriage, you know, several yeah. months earlier, mm -hmm. but that was how it happened. Okay. And so I'm not even sure. I have a, a few people that I know who have been adopted, but I don't know what's the process like for parents seeking to adopt? I know that sometimes it can last years and there's a lot of checks and so on. Can you tell us, like, for example, because you said that you 
looked at different yes. agencies and mm -hmm. then how does it even you like you have to select one or how does that work It really depends. Uh, we decided initially that we wanted to adopt internationally. We wanted to go to a different mm -hmm. country. Within the US, it's a completely different process than adopting from a different country. So, but some parts are the same. The first thing you have to do after you decide where you want to adopt from, what you're looking for, all of those things is to pick an agency and pick a program. So for us, we did a lot of research. We looked into different countries. Initially, I thought we wanted to adopt from China. Once I learned that there was such a long wait time for China at that time, remember this was in uh, the year 2000, okay. I decided uh, one of the agencies I talked to suggested looking at Vietnam. So then we looked at Vietnam. So once we decided on Vietnam, we looked at the different agencies that have programs in Vietnam and we, we chose one of them. The next thing that we did was we had to start a home study and that's the same no matter, at least in the United States, That's the same whether you are adopting from another country or adopting from the United States. You have to have a home study where a social worker comes to the house, asks mm -hmm. about a million questions, looks at the house, makes sure you seem suitable. She comes back a few times with, with a new set of questions and updates and such. And then she writes a report saying that she feels that you would be a good family to raise a child. The, mm -hmm. At the same time for us, we had to do the international part, which is called a dossier. And you, It's basically a collection of paperwork and the country that you're, that we were adopting from Vietnam, they had certain paperwork they required. And then the United States had certain paperwork that they required. So we had to do things like collect our birth certificates and our marriage certificate. There were also specific forms for Vietnam that we had to have filled out and translated into Vietnamese. Mm -hmm. It's a whole long process, but It's a lot of paperwork, but the agency kind of walked us through and told us what we needed to do at each step. Mm -hmm. Then after all of that was, was submitted and translated, it got submitted to Vietnam. And then we were matched with a child. And in this case, we were supposed to go to Vietnam twice to get the child. So they called me at the last minute, said, can you go next week? I said, well, there's no way my husband can get off of work that quick. They said, that's fine. Only, only one parent needs to go on the first trip. So I went to Vietnam. Theoretically, I would have submitted all of my paperwork, the dossier, which included my home study, to the embassy in Vietnam to be reviewed. Then they would review it, make sure that everything that was required was there. And then we would have gone back a month later at, to pick up our child. Mm -hmm. So that would have been the process had we ended up adopting from Vietnam. Every country is a little bit different, but that's the basic. There's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of questions. And once it's all done, you can go and pick up your child. And so how long did it take for you? Well, I started in November and mm -hmm. we got a referral for a child at the end of January. And then I flew to Vietnam in February, but then everything went wrong. And oh. there's all kinds of crazy stuff that happened in Vietnam, which is what made it, makes it an interesting book. And I came home and they ended up terminating all the adoptions in Vietnam. And I don't want to give away the end of the book, but I, we, I searched for different countries that I could adopt from. I called agencies all over the United States and we kind of ended up with a little bit of a surprise where we found our child and we got her in May. So the entire process for me 
I was incredibly driven. I did everything mm. as quickly as I possibly could. So for me, the process was only about six months, but that is wow. very, very unusual. Usually it takes a mm -hmm. lot longer. Yes. In my family, it took, I think, a few years even to, to be able to, to adopt. So six months is definitely really fast. So that's good. Well, and that's, you know, that again, that's kind of part of the intrigue of the book was that I was just so driven that mm -hmm. I was going to make this happen. No, whatever I had to do, this was, I was on a mission. Yeah. That's very inspiring and, and beautiful. And it led you to your daughter. So it that's did. incredible. And so you mentioned that you started to write about this adoption process to read it to her as a kid. Can I you did. tell us why and, you know, how, like, how soon did you introduce that? Well, again, her basic story, I told her when she was very, very little. Mm -hmm. I, I had read before we actually adopted while I was that sick during that six months. Again, I was very driven and I did a lot of reading about adoptions and how to have mm -hmm. the most healthy adoptions. And one of the things that was kind of universal was it was really important for kids to always know they were adopted and to know as much about their adoption story as they could, because yes. anything they didn't know, they would make up a story. And so if they could know the actual truth, it was just a healthier, a healthier way to live. Mm -hmm. So I wrote adoption, the little baby books, little picture books for my daughter and subsequently each of my sons, because I have three kids when they were babies, I wrote it before she was a year old. This story that my novel or my memoir, when Hillary was about five, someone asked me a question about my trip to Vietnam and I couldn't remember the answer. And I said, oh my gosh, I want to be able to tell Hillary when she gets older, everything I went to. And I want to be able to tell her the, the whole story of how we mm -hmm. found her and everything we went through on the way. And I don't want to forget any details. So I went to, I took out my computer and I wrote it all down. And that was the first draft of my book. I then I worked in adoption for several years. I worked counseling adoptive families and helping them through the process. And like we talked about, there can be a really long waiting period. So frequently I would tell my families the story of my daughter's adoption and how I found her and how perfect she was for us and how I knew it was just right. But I had to go through all this other stuff in order to wait for her to be born. And every time I would tell the story, my clients would tell me, oh my gosh, that's so amazing. It's so inspiring. You need to write this down. And I said, I already did. So I tried, they said, you should really publish it. So I tried and I think it was 2008. I, I opened up my first draft and I went to read it and I just cried. It was too emotional. It was too soon. It was mm. too close. And I said, no, I'm not doing it. So I put it back on the computer and left it alone. And um, during the pandemic, obviously all of our lives changed and yeah. I was home and I had several people, it was just kind of the universe talking to me again, several people telling me, you need to do something that's really fulfilling for you. And you need to, and, and I had several people ask me, are you an author? Just kind of randomly out of the blue. And I never mm -hmm. took a writing class in my life. And I don't know why they asked me that, you know, like I wrote a really good email or something. And, and this all happened in a very short period of time. And I said, you know what? I think it's time to take this book off the computer and get it edited and written. So that's what I did. I started about a year ago in, I think, February of 
2021 was mm -hmm. when I started working on this book. And actually I submitted it to a publisher and I started working with my editor in March. Nice. Well, that's, that's huge. And it's good that it really helps other parents because I'm sure you would have a lot of advice for them. That's why you went and worked in that field, right? Uh, what is like some things, for example, that would be some steps or I don't know, some, some things well, that you would tell parents like looking for to adopt? Well, my book is not really advice. My book reads like a novel. It's a story. Okay. It's my story. It's kind of action packed. It makes you laugh and cry and everything else, but it does list kind of what we, uh, what we've alluded to here. It talks about okay. the home study process. It talks about gathering the documents for the dossier it talks about the trip that I went on and what that was like, but it is in the story format. I have also written a series of articles to go with the book. That's a little bit more pragmatic. It's, mm -hmm. I have one um, article about kind of what questions you should ask yourself if you, if you think you want to adopt, or if you want to adopt, but you're not sure the right route for you, just kind of questions to ask yourself. Um, there's one of the articles that's about choosing an agency and what kind of questions you should ask to the different agencies that you talk to and what kind of answers you should look for and what things are important. Um, I, one of the things that's kind of come of this book that's really important is after the adoption. For some reason, every time I talk to someone, this is kind of where this discussion leads to. And it, it goes to telling kids their own adoption story. And mm -hmm. It's particularly important, I found that recently there's this large group of adopted adults who were adopted as children that are not happy. They're not happy that they were adopted. They're not happy with how their adoption was handled. There were times when there are some of these, you know, obviously every situation is different, but in some cases, the kids were never told they were adopted until maybe they were older. And I can't imagine what that would be like to grow up thinking mm -hmm. that this is your family and maybe as a teenager or who knows, some of them said they, they found out for themselves after they turned 18 to find out that this wasn't your biological family. That would be horrible. I, I, I can't even imagine. So I, I can't even imagine how to like keep a, a massive secret for years like that. Like, and I, guess I wouldn't be that, able to sleep. <laughs> I guess that many years ago, this was done. It was very taboo mm -hmm. and you know the whole idea of unwed pregnancy was very taboo and and infertility was very taboo you know back in yeah. who knows when before before the 80s and 90s you know even before I, before I was ever mm -hmm. involved in any of this it, it was it was very True. you know I think when my mom was of childbearing age it was they would send women off to homes for unwed mothers. Mm. And then they would just come back nine months later and like nothing had happened. And these, these other women who had infertility issues that nobody ever talked about would just show up with a baby one day and they would never talk about it. And it would never taught was never talked about where it came from. So of mm. course, those kids are going to have a lot of trauma involved mm. with finding out about their adoption. Even when we adopted my daughter, around the year 2001 when she was born. But around that time, it was still closed adoptions were very, very common and even encouraged. They really didn't, the agencies that we worked with did not encourage any kind of contact with birth parents. They really didn't you know, encourage any kind of openness there at all. I had done a lot of research. I have a master's degree in counseling and I knew how important it was for kids to know as much about themselves as they can. Mm -hmm. 
So it was really important to me that my kids always knew exactly where they came from and had as much information as I could give them. So even though at the time it wasn't really encouraged, I opened an email with my daughter's name and I gave that email address to the birth parents. And I said, if you want to get in touch, if you want to know how she's doing, send me an email and I will answer you. So in today's world, like people raise kids with the biological parents and everything. And it's very different now, but at that time that was like radical. So mm-hmm. I did, and, and they didn't talk to me for years, but when she was about three years old, they contacted me. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to find out more about them. And now we're Facebook friends and stuff like that. So okay. I know, I know, you know, we're able to follow each other's lives. They're not a big part of my life. They're not a big part of my kids' lives, but if we want them, we know where to find them. We know how to reach them and we can mm-hmm. check in on them and they can check in on us and know how the other is doing at any time. But I always left that for my kids. I always told them, if you want to talk to your birth mom, we'll call her. And, you know, there, there certainly were some restrictions based on their age and how much, you know, I was able to do at the time. I couldn't just, two of my kids were adopted. Neither of the birth moms live in the same state even. So, you know, I couldn't just say, oh, we'll just go see her tomorrow because that mm-hmm. was not practical. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But I did write these books for them. And this seems to be kind of the focus that this journey has led me to is the importance of kids knowing their own stories. So I wrote these books before they were a year old. And the reason I wrote them, one of the big reasons was I just wanted them to always know that they were adopted. I wanted that Mm -hmm. to never 
to just be something that was just a part of them, like that they have brown hair. It's the same thing. Oh, I have brown hair. I'm good at dance and I'm adopted. It's all just, there's no judgment there. There's no good, bad, or indifferent. It's just part of who they are. Mm -hmm. So they had these books and I read them to them when they were babies. And then I read them as they got older. And the other thing about, there's multiple great things about having these books. First of all, the story never changed. So you know, my daughter now makes fun of me a lot because I'll tell a story about what happened at the store the other day. And so I'll get one detail wrong and she'll say, mom, you always tell the story wrong. (laughs) You don't remember anything. Well, this way, when it's written down in a book, I would read the book. So the words never change. The story always exactly the same. And they always had a copy of the book in their room. So if they ever questioned themselves, where did I come from? Did my parents really want me? Did my birth parents really want me? They could go and open their book and look and see it in black and white for themselves because the story was always there to go back to. They also liked, all my kids liked taking their books when they were little to school for show and tell. Yeah. There was no, They were never ashamed of it. They were never upset by it. They would bring their story to show and tell so that everyone would be able to know their story. So mm-hmm. It, it was just a great tool, I think, to have these books and to have these concrete versions of their story that never changed, that they could go back to whenever they wanted, that they could share with whoever they wanted. They didn't have to worry about remembering it. And it's just, I think it really helped them to stay very grounded and stay very healthy within their own family and adoption. Mm. Yes, it sounds like a, a great tool. And I mean, I completely agree with you. I think I am sure some of these people, you know, finding out later that they were adopted, it's kind of like it clicks and you're like, oh, that's why. Because you can always feel when something is, you know, when someone is hiding the truth from you. So I think obviously going with the truth is is perfect because then you can answer as many of the, as the you know questions that they have. I think also I hear a lot of people have views on adoption. And so I I would like to get your opinion because I hear, for example, oh, but like you'll see the teenagers for adoptees are really rough. You know, it's complicated. Is that like, what do you think about that? I think it can be. And I think there's been a lot of research done and a lot of discussion and press, particularly on social media about the trauma of adoption and just the trauma of the simple fact of being taken from a child's biological parents. Mm -hmm. And that is a trauma. However, first of all, everyone deals with trauma differently. So even if there were a hundred kids that are on a bus that are hot, that went through the same, that that live in the same family or, you know, basically similar families. And the the bus is hit by, is in a car accident. Some of those kids are going to get off the bus and say, oh my gosh, that was the worst thing that ever happened to me. And it's going to affect them for the rest of their lives. They're going to be afraid of buses for the rest of their life. Some of those kids are going to say, wow, this was really cool. We didn't have to go back to school at the end of the day. Some of those kids are going to say, wow, that was kind of scary, but we're really lucky. We're all good. And we didn't get hurt. And this was one, this was a great thing that we were all really lucky. So everybody's going to deal with that trauma differently. And pretty much every child or every person is going to deal with different levels of trauma in their lives throughout their lives. So yes, adoption in and of itself is a trauma, but it will affect some people and it will affect some other people less. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, 
I think as adoptive parents, we have an obligation to do our best to give the kids, to give our kids the tools that we can as best we can to manage that trauma if it has affected them. If, and, and I have two adopted kids and they've dealt with the trauma very differently. Mm-hmm. My daughter, when she was young, asked lots and lots of questions. She would always ask about her birth mom and wanting to know, and where is she? Where does she live? And, and is she married? And does she have other children? And I always told her, and we talked about it. And we talked about why she was placed for adoption. We talked about that her birth parents didn't feel like they were in a position to parent her at that time. And they chose us to parent her instead. And I think that's really, really important to answer whatever questions kids have in as honest a way you can, as you can, whenever, whenever they ask them, obviously at an age appropriate level, this was not a factor for my kids, but there are a lot of adoptions where the birth parents have drug abuse issues. Of course, you're not going to tell a five-year-old, oh, your birth parents have drug abuse issues. You have to tell them in a, in an age appropriate way, but indulging them in discussing these things as much as they want, I think really like any trauma, the more you can discuss it and the more it's not brushed under the rug and told that it's not important or that it's not a trauma or whatever, the more you can acknowledge it and empathize and discuss it, I think the better for them. Mm. And how did your second child deal with trauma? Um, my, my son, he didn't really want to talk about it much. Mm-hmm. I think as a teenager, he does struggle with it a little bit. I think he, he, but he knows, you know, again, I have, I wrote him a book too. He has his own book. I mean, not my novel, but I, he has his own baby book and he has always known he was adopted. He's always known about his birth mom. He just didn't choose to talk about it as much. I don't know if it's because okay. he was a boy, but definitely there are issues now that we're seeing in him that are difficult and teenagers are difficult in general, whether they're your biological children or adopted children, it doesn't matter. I have three, well, my daughter's 20 now, but I have three in that, in that general age group. They're all difficult in their own way. And my biological child is no easier than either of my adopted children. They just have different issues because they're different people and they're very different people yes yeah no I I really liked your your explanation of like the the kids in in the bus I think every like you know it really speaks to me and and it explains how you know different people deal with trauma very well so it's a good image for sure and did you as a mother have any, you know, like, how did you prepare yourself? Did you have anything that you would do in order to be, a, you know, a mom of an adoptee? Like, of course, you did some research. Is there any any way to behave? I guess well, it depends think, on the kid as well, but. Yeah. It, it definitely depends on the kid. I think definitely just, and this is going to sound strange, but remembering sometimes my kids are my kids and I don't think of them any differently, the Mm -hmm. adopted ones versus the biological child. Of course. And there are times when there'll be something that's like kind of a biological predisposition or, you know, even a medical issue or something. And we'll be like, gosh, we don't know anybody like that. And we're like, oh yeah, that's right. He's, 
not biologically ours. You know, mm -hmm. so there are times when I even forget um, <laughs> that that we need to be reminded, oh yeah, that could be from his birth parents. We don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but but more than that, just I think the biggest thing is just being willing to make this an open thing, make it not a big deal and something mm -hmm. that you're happy to talk about. Again, I've, I've talked with a lot of adoptees in recent months and I've been on a lot of like Facebook pages and such with a lot of adoptees who they've said that their adoptive parents get very threatened, get very yeah. defensive when they want to know about their biological parents and they say, what are, you know, are we not enough for you? Are we not good enough for you? I don't know why I was never threatened in that way. I, I always knew these were my kids. It was my job to raise them. Yeah. They, you know, I was legally responsible for them until they turned 18. I don't see any chance of them leaving anytime soon, even though <laughs> they're past <laughs> that age, but that, yeah, this was a part of who they were. And I wanted them to, to know about it. And I wanted them mm -hmm. to know their biological families as much as they wanted to know them. And I, I would never hide anything about that. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's really, really hard, especially, you know, kind of in these international adoptions in particular, like adopting children from China, they got almost no information at all exactly. about their parents. And, and I think that would be really hard. I think the world's getting smaller every day between mm -hmm. the DNA testing and all the social media and how much you can find nowadays online is amazing. And I think that even those adoptees where there was previously no information available, suddenly there's going to be more just because of, of all this technology, which I think is great. And, and I hope that, that they seek that out and they're able to find that information because I do think that would be really hard to mm -hmm. just, you know, and that's what we were trying to do. We were trying to adopt internationally where we, where we might not have had very much information about our child's birth mother. Yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe it would be harder if you didn't know them at all, you know, if you didn't have any communication and if you don't know how stable they are. I, I guess some parents are probably also trying to protect their kids because you don't know what information they were given at the beginning, maybe very little, but sometimes you think, oh, you know, what if they get so disappointed when they meet their birth parents? Because it's a, it's a big deal, I think, when you don't know anything at all. I don't know. Well, and I think, I think there's always going to be some sort of longing with an adopted mm -hmm. child to know where they came from, to know yeah. people who look like them, to see people who look like them. I think that's, that's just, it's always going to be an innate kind of desire. Mm -hmm. And I think if it's possible to make that, you know, to have that as an opportunity for them, I think it's a really healthy, good thing. And the fact is no adoption stems from a happy situation. I think no matter how hard you try to think of even like a princess who's, you know, the, her father, the king doesn't want her to have a child yet. It's still a tragic situation. It's still a sad situation, no matter what it is, whether the birth mm -hmm. parents have died or they are not financially able to take care of their kids, or they're not medically able to take care of their kids, or they just choose not to, it, there has to be a yeah. pretty strong reason for them to place a child for adoption. So you do have to protect your children from that, particularly when they're young and phrase it that way that you're, 
birth parents were in a difficult situation and mm -hmm. they didn't feel they could do a good job parenting you. So they made the, the selfless choice to put you with parents who had the resources, what, whatever they are, whether again, whether they're financial or health wise or whatever, to be able to parent you in, in hopefully a better way than they would be able to. Yeah, this is very true. And I know that my uncle had a few pictures of his mom actually on the counter so that they were out like, you know, yeah. she's like his biological mom. And so he knew also a little bit the story and so on, but I, I still don't think they have like no contact with her, but at least, yeah, I think that helps to, as you said about like knowing, you know, what they look like. And I think it's, I think sometimes, and that's also circling back to what you said earlier about like, if, if something doesn't really make sense or if there's a gap, they're going to make up the story. And I guess when you have a lot of questions, it's sometimes it's way worse than knowing the truth and that's the truth. And so that's it. Like you, you know, it, it can be hard to take, but then there's no doubt, you know, that's, that's what it is rather than, oh, what if, and I wonder, and you know, there's, there's already so many questions they must have. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think not knowing is always worse. I think mm. and there's been a lot of studies done about that children identify and see themselves in as similar to their same-sex biological parents, whether they were adopted or not. So there are going to be certain things that traits that I see that were my mother's traits, and that's how I'm going to see myself. And there were studies done that I learned about when I was in graduate school, where even kids who were adopted and only knew this much information about their biological parents, when asked to describe themselves, they would use that information to describe themselves. And which, you know, is fascinating because it might just be that they were, you know, that their birth mom left them on a doorstep. And, you know, whatever they gleaned from that, if they saw that as, that she was weak, that she had to leave her child on doorstep or that she was sad, what, whatever they attribute those mm -hmm. characteristics, that's how they saw themselves. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was really, really interesting. And, and I think, and, you know, again, that's why I tried. And in my, in the books that I wrote for my kids, I really tried hard to portray their birth moms as loving people who wanted what was best for their children and just weren't able to give that to them at that time yeah, yeah. i mean yeah it's definitely a, still like a, a hard process is definitely a sacrifice as well so yes for sure so anyway we'll put the link of your book and all of your your details in the description box for everyone interested is there any less advice that you would like to share just to one of the things that i i kind of learned in number one in the adoption journey. And then also in my journey with writing this book, I kind of alluded to earlier with just kind of following the universe. And, and I, I feel like, and this is kind of my own belief and I, I'm not a particularly spiritual person, but I kind of believe that there's this path that we're supposed to stay on. And we're people, we're human beings. We have, we have free will. We can stray off the path at any time, but I just feel like the universe and, and the way things come together, it's always going to be drawing you back 
to, to that path and drawing you back to kind of the path you're supposed to be on. And in any of these journeys, yeah, there's going to be times when you need to fight and say, okay, look, we need to push this through. We need to get this done. But there's times to look and say, look, all these signs are pointing me in this direction. There's all these things happening that are just leading me to, I need to write a book last year, Mm -hmm. you know, that there were all these signs leading me to, I need to write a book and to be able to dismiss your own prejudices and thoughts and, and moments, uh, you know, uh, emotions of that moment to just kind of push that aside and say, and be able to observe and say, things seem to be falling into place in this way. And my, it's funny, my grandmother used to say when, when we would play, when we would play cards and then I play Mahjong and the girl I play Mahjong with, they said the exact same thing. They say, play what comes to you. And I think that sometimes we need to live our lives that way and and play what comes to us. Mm, That's beautiful. I so agree with it. I think if you're able to hear because it's not always, you know, the case as well, because if you're too busy and so on, sometimes it takes longer to get to you. But if you're able to hear your calling, then who are you to go the other way? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, sometimes you, you know, and definitely I still fight it sometimes. And I still say, oh, me too. this is what I want. This is what I want. <laughs> you know, I, I'm looking for a new house because I want to get a smaller house. And, yeah. you know, I keep seeing houses and I'm trying to make them work saying, well, if we did this and if we did this, it could work. And my realtor keeps saying the right house will come along. You just need to wait for it. It's like, exactly. okay. It's not yours. It's not yours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, obviously it teaches patience as well, which I have a long way to go with patience, but me too. It's good. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's good. And I guess it's the same way I launched the podcast is I thought, you know, I really feel like this is what I need to do and I don't know how to explain it. And it took a long time and I kind of thought it for a long time. And I guess the pandemic was also the time that really I couldn't stop listening anymore and I just think if I can help one person and I'm sure it's the same with your book you know it's just so worth it yeah yeah absolutely and you know this pandemic has been horrible and obviously it's killed Mm -hmm. a lot of people and it's inconvenienced the entire world at the same time like my daughter she says she said to me in 2020 when we were all kind of in the heart of it and she said mom don't you think the world really needed a reset and it, 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 as bad as it, as it's been, and obviously horrible things came from it and, and mm-hmm. there's no diminishing the, the trauma of everyone who of died course. from the disease and everything, but it did make us all, I think, look at things a little bit in a more simple way and in a different yeah. way. And it made all of us kind of slow down and think within ourselves and see what's going on around us. Cause we mm-hmm. couldn't leave the house for a while there. And, you know, you mm-hmm. run out of things to do so we all I think kind of learned to meditate a little bit and and take in what was going on around us which I think is a really really good thing yeah tell your loved ones you love them because it was especially at the beginning we were all a bit it's really scary what's going on so yeah yeah thank you so so much Jennifer for sharing everything with us as mentioned all of the links are in the description box so that you can check them out from home Thank you for sharing your expertise and all of your advice. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Feel free to share if you think it might be helpful to someone you know. 
If you enjoyed this episode, then please make sure to write a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and subscribe if you haven't already. That's it for me. See you soon with the next episode. And in the meantime, have a lovely day. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.